Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, we look at Cade Cunningham, Rockets rumors. Yes, that's happening. The Astros' offensive struggles also a part of the conversation. And is Chris Paul choking in the NBA Finals? Lots to talk about in this one. As always, I'm joined by my co-host and regular sidekick, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and veteran journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, did you even watch the Astros' less all-star game? (laughs) Okay, Robert, I'm going to be, I'm going to play George Washington here. I cannot tell a lie. I have this good book I was reading. I decided to spend more time on it than the all-star game. So there, I've said it, it's out. It's it's public, so there you go. <laughs> These all star games, all pro game or pro bowl game, whatever. I, I I just I have less and less of an interest as they go along, and I, I just feel like the players, like we talked about last week, have less and less of an interest. Baseball seems to be the most legitimate because they're still playing hard. They're still throwing the baseball hard. I feel like the guys are putting forth the effort, but you know, it's it's crazy to see an all star game with no Astros. Like I, I think that's a first in a long time because you know usually you're required to have one player as a representative and typically that player isn't going to be hurt or or opting out as they did this year yeah and as we said before robert i mean there are at least half a dozen reasons or excuses or you know ways out that a player can use according to the uh agreement between you know the players association and mlb it's like if if you really don't want to be there you can find a reason not to and I, I just think, yeah, you know what? If the players aren't going to take it seriously, then why should the fans? I mean, that, that's really my point. I think it, it just occurred to me when I decided not to watch the game. Well, you know, a lot of these players that you want to see are not going to be in there. You know, Shohei Otani was there. He's he's the big draw this year. But other than that, I mean, if, if they're not going to take it seriously, then I've got better things to do, too. And I think a lot of other fans feel the same way. Since we're not taking it seriously, let's move on. And yeah, there you go. <laughs> talk about the Astros. Offensive struggles uh, prior to Monday night's game, the Astros OPS in July 606, the lowest in baseball this month. Monday, they scored four runs, so it's not like their OPS jumped up a ton. And the 19 games after that 11-game winning streak, 19 games, their OPS is 405, three and a half runs per game. Are you concerned about the offense at all? Well, Robert, here's my... I guess what I don't understand with this Astros offense is that it's either hotter than the 4th of July or as cold as the North Pole when Santa Claus is, is coming for us. I, I don't, you know, there, there just seems to be no in-between. It's feast or famine. I think that's the biggest concern for me. The, the other concern that I have is, you know, for the longest time, the Astros, they, they've had a wide margin as far as, I, I guess you'd call it the lowest strikeout rate in the major leagues. But you know, they, they struck out uh, up until Monday night. They struck out 34 times in that series with the White Sox. I mean, they just the strikeout rate has been going up. Carlos Correa, you know, we can talk about, you know, he apparently was very ill. He didn't have COVID, but apparently had a virus that's really. But he was slumping even before that. He has struck out in, in his last 26 plate appearances. He struck out half that many, 13. So. The strikeout rate, I think, is is what's concerning me as much as anything, Robert. 
Correa said his timing isn't the same since uh, he was coming off the virus. He hadn't done anything. He got weak with the virus pretty bad. Uh, it looked like, uh, you know, it could have been COVID, but now they're saying it's not. But it seemed like the symptoms were very similar. Another guy that's been struggling, Jordan Alvarez, who broke an 0 for 22 slump with the two-run home run Monday night. Just doesn't seem like... He's seeing the ball the way he was in his rookie season this year. You look at the numbers, and I said, I, I just don't feel like we've seen the Jordan Alvarez I've quite expected after the rookie season. Uh, he has 94 strikeouts and 52 walks. That was his rookie year, and, and, and almost the same number at bats, 39 less at bats, 90 strikeouts, and just 25 walks. So he's not walking nearly as much. I, I don't feel like it's because of the guys before and after him. It just doesn't seem like he's quite seeing the ball like he, he did in the past. But Steven, we also saw Jordan looking a little banged up Monday night after his late inning double. It may be time to give him a 10-day stint on the IL. And I say this not because I think it's a serious injury, but you just can't take a chance with him getting more serious with just, what do we have, 10, 11 weeks to go in the season, especially when you've got a three-and-a-half game lead in the division. This is still a pretty good lineup, even without Jordan. Plus, you've got the Indians, Rangers, and Mariners in the next 10 days. And you could have Jordan back for the Giants series. So the schedule is actually, it's a good it's a good break to, to potentially give him uh, a 10-day stint. I, I, I don't know if it's going to happen. I doubt it. But, you know, if I'm looking at everything all together, it's something you got to think about. Yeah, and here's the other thing to consider, Robert. Of course, first of all, uh, we're, we, you know, he set the bar so high in his first season <laughs> that it just, uh, you know, we we start panicking when Jordan slumps. But, uh, you know, the, the truth is he is going to slump. I think one thing to consider, Robert, that, that may actually add credence to what you just said, you know, Jordan Alvarez has yet to play a full 162-game season. You know, in, in 2019, of course, he didn't play the full season. In, in 2020, he, I mean, I guess he did it in 2019 if you count the minor leagues, you know, and, and what he did in the major leagues, it's probably pretty close. But still, you know, in 2020, there certainly wasn't a full season. So I think, you know, you're seeing part of that, you know, this year is he is in position to play an entire 162-game season, you know, with the stretch. So that may have something to do with it. But I, I definitely think you, you certainly want your Jordan Alvarez and guys like that to be ready when they need to be ready as the season goes along, especially when you get toward the end. And you certainly are going to need him in the postseason. You don't want him being out, you know, and not and, and struggling like he did in the 2020 postseason. Yeah, the injuries so far in his career, it just seems like he's a guy that going forward, it's going to be kid gloves. You're going to have to be real careful with him. Uh, he can't play a lot in the field, so... It's just surprising when he has all these injuries, considering that he's not playing a position on a regular basis. Meanwhile, you've got the relief pitcher that you need to get healthy pretty quickly. And Pedro Baez, who's pitched two innings now on his rehab assignment, he pitched in single A Fayetteville. So low minors, but gave up one hit, zero runs. We're now 11 days from the trade deadline. We still don't know where Baez will be coming out of the bullpen in a few days. And Steven, there's not one guy outside of Presley that you and I, I would say, feel confident that we can trust in the bullpen, unless you're counting, unless you're willing to say maybe Christian Javier, but even Javier has had some struggles 
this year out of the bullpen. I, I just don't uh, know how you can get to this deadline without making a deal. And it, it almost seems like you need two relievers, if I'm being honest. But I, I, I would be happy if they just got one guy that's a solid guy. Yeah, I certainly would too, Robert. And I think, you know, as we've said before, relievers are, are somewhat easier to find on the market than, say, a starting pitcher. And and we don't know what Austin Pruitt is going to provide. You know, he pitched the other night and he gave up a home run and, you know, he, he showed some flashes. But unfortunately, we're, we're not going to be able to breathe easy about this Astros bullpen until they go into a stretch where you can say, OK, maybe they're past this point. That hasn't happened this entire season. You know, Ryan Presley's been the guy, you know, what he, he gave up a, a leadoff walk on Monday night, but he got out of it. You, you didn't get too nervous about it. So he's really the only guy you can count on. Ryan Stanek, I mean, he's done pretty well, but even he's had his struggles over the course of the last few months. So, yeah, we're not going to be able to breathe easy about this Astros bullpen for a while, unfortunately. Michael Schwab, formerly of USA Today. I, I don't know how big a name he is. Stephen, but he's saying the Astros are interested in Max Scherzer. Do you think Schaub's really a good source, number one? And number two, is it worth trading for Max Scherzer? Yeah, I'm not as familiar with Schwab's writing. I, I know I've heard the name. Um, I certainly don't put him in the – like if someone like, say, Bob Nightingale had, had said that, I would take some credence to it. As far as the Astros trading for Max Scherzer, I, I just – I mean, I would be shocked, honestly – but, you know, they did trade for Zach Greinke, but but this was before the James Click era. I, I don't, I just don't see Click making a move like that with, with his kind of money and his, his durability or, you know, the question of his durability. You know, that would be my main concern. I just don't see him making that deal because you can do a lot cheaper deal for a reliever and the Astros, you know, really that's where their issue is. You can say, well, you get Max Scherzer, that improves your high end potentially. And then uh, you've got some guys that you can stick in the bullpen. But even though I love Arquiti as a starter, am I, am I excited about him going to the bullpen? Am I excited about Jake Odorizzi potentially going to the bullpen? I mean, those are the options because we know Lance McCullers and Granke and Scherzer would all have to be your starters. So at, at that point, you're going, okay, what am I moving over to the bullpen and how confident am, am I in those guys? as opposed to let's just go out and get a guy that knows how to pitch out of the bullpen, that's been doing it, that's having a successful season, that's cheaper money-wise, that might be with the Astros two and three years down the road at a, at a contract that you can afford. I think all of those things you're looking at, and I just, I'm like, why, why Scherzer? I, I get his front-end talent, but the Astros have starters that I just feel like they're not – much different than where you are with Scherzer. I say that, though, as Fromber continues to struggle, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, Robert, I, I think there is still an outside chance that the Astros could make a move for a starting pitcher just because of all the questions you just mentioned. I, I, I'm not saying that that's their biggest need, but I, I do think it is something that Click is probably looking at. You know, the biggest question I think you have to look at really is, so do the Astros want to go for it now? Or do they want to try to to provide for the future? And yeah, the, Max Scherzer's front end talent, as you said, is, is without question. But I, I just feel like the way the Astros are headed, that they're they're not going to spend the money for a guy like that. That they're going to try to go for more of the bargain guys. You know, maybe hope that somebody in their farm system can step up, or, or even with you know the, the talent they have now on the roster, 
can, at least in the long run, step up and, and make that contribution consistently that they're going to need. Yeah, and I, I see them still having a future down, you know, in the next few years. But I, I just I'm concerned about Carlos Correa coming back because if Correa is not going to be back, it's not somebody that's real easy to replace. And I'm not just talking about what he brings on the field, and we know what he brings on the field defensively. Uh, clutch-wise, all of that sort of stuff. I, I, I just am real concerned if he's gone where the big-time leadership is going to be because you can say, well, Altuve is a leader or Bregman or you know whoever you want to put in that position, but I, I'm not anywhere near as confident about their leadership as I am in Carlos Correa. I mean, he is the alpha on this team right now, and if he's gone, who takes over that role? I, I don't feel like it's any of the pitchers. Um, and, it, and it usually is an everyday player. And, and who is that guy? Because Altuve, he's still a pretty quiet guy. I just don't see him as a guy that controls that clubhouse, if you know what I'm saying. He leads by example. That's what Jose Altuve does. He leads by example. Yeah, he, he is a quiet leader. He's not a rah-rah type. And, and he's not the kind that as is as aggressive, if I could use that word, as somebody like Carlos Correa is, like especially when Framber Valdez gets in trouble, Carlos Correa is the first person out there to try to settle him down. And as far as you know, the players on the field, you know, aside from Brent Strom or you know Dusty Baker when he comes out to remove him, Carlos Correa is that guy. He showed it last year in the postseason, and ever since then, even he he is honestly the captain on the field. And if you lose that, and I think we talked about this recently, you know, the the Astros are losing that kind of thing when you're talking about players like uh, George Springer, you know, uh, Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, those kind of guys have left the team. You lose Carlos Correa. That's, that's yet another aspect of your leadership that you're losing. You know, Alex Bregman could be that guy, but I just don't see him in that role. You know, I, I maybe on more than Altuve perhaps, but yeah, who are you going to find with that? As far as the pitchers, I guess the closest thing is Lance McCullers Jr. You know, to to have that swagger, you know, that confidence that the other the the younger guys can draw on. All right. Well, the story that was a little bit under the radar from an Astros standpoint in the last week was the draft because the Astros did not have a first or second round pick in the draft this year. Still dealing with the ramifications of the cheating scandal, but. There was a kind of cool story. In 1993, the Astros drafted Billy Wagner in the first round. 28 years later, they drafted his son, Will Wagner, out of Liberty in the 18th round. What do you think about that, Stephen? We got Billy Wagner's son. Hey, well, you know what? If if his dad's magic could, could even halfway rub off on his son, Will. Now, Will's not a pitcher. He's a second baseman. So I, I don't think you're going to see him you know, uh, being a closer for the Astros or a starting pitcher, it doesn't look like it. But, hey, uh, you know, some of these late-round guys, you just never know. The The draft is 20 rounds. Will was selected in the 18th round. But, yeah, it was, it was good to see. I mean, I, you know, it's a feel-good story. You hope it pans out. But another Wagner in the Astros organization, it, it can't hurt, right? Yeah, they've done this before. They drafted Biggio's kid. That didn't work out so well. They've drafted uh... – Roger Clemens' kid, nothing really happened with him. They also have Carlos Correa's brother, who's in the minor leagues and is doing pretty well. J.C. Correa is uh, moving up the organization right now. I don't know if he's uh, a guy that you're going to consider a big prospect, but 
you know, we'll see what happens with him, and he's doing well right now. Will Wagner, you mentioned him as a second baseman. He's a left-handed hitter, 955 OPS his senior year at Liberty. So that's fantastic. Just made one error in the field, good fielder, doing all the things that you would want from a second baseman for sure. You know, we'll kind of see what happens uh, in the Astros draft. But, Stephen, at least we got this over with. And next year, the Astros have all their picks. And, you know, it's it's back to business as usual, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, a lot of people don't put a whole lot of stock in the MLB draft, you know, at least from an immediacy standpoint. It certainly doesn't get the buzz that the NFL draft, the NBA draft, you know, does. But it's certainly important in the full scheme of your team. You know, you look toward the future. You've got to have draft picks. And, you know, what what has hamstrung the Astros the last couple of years is is the lack of draft picks. So, yeah, that that's definitely something to consider is next year they'll be kind of at full strength, so to speak. And speaking of the scandal, you looked at the White Sox series, and it seems like there was a lot of uh, stuff from the fan- – like every place the Astros go, there's a lot of stuff from the fans – but the headline that just cracked me up the most is I, I looked in the Houston Chronicle and it said, fans of team that threw World Series mock Astros for cheating. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny you say that because when the whole cheating scandal broke for the Astros and, and the, you know, the hammer came down, as it were, that was one of the first things I thought about is, you know, people have been talking for the last 100 years about the Black Sox scandal. And unfortunately... Something like this is going to follow the Astros, you know, probably for the next hundred years, people are still going to be talking about it. So, yeah, it's ironic that the Astros and White Sox, two cheaters playing each other. So who are you rooting for? It's just, you know, the, the White Sox are a hundred years removed from the Black Sox scandal, but, you know, it, it's no less a big deal in the eyes of some, if, especially if they know about it. So, yeah, that, that is quite interesting that you bring that up. And just a memo to you White Sox fans. Uh, you guys are rooting as your manager for a manager that basically supported Mark McGuire most of his career. Let's just keep that in mind. And Ed Canseco yeah. for a time as well. Yeah, the, the way that they went about their quote-unquote home run strength, right. Well, uh, speaking of uh, history, because you were talking about the White Sox history, let's get to the Astros and some positive Astros history, right? Yes, I've got uh, several things that happened this week in Astros history. We can go back to July 18th in 2001. Uh, Jeff Bagwell hit for his first and only cycle in his career. You you would think, gosh, Jeff Bagwell, he may have hit for the cycle two, three times. Nope, he only did it once, and it was in 2001 against the Cardinals and the Astros. It It was almost a... Football score, Robert. They beat the Cardinals 17-11 to 11 in that game. Um, and the game took place, the, the ballpark was Enron Field. Yeah, I know. They, they changed the name. It is, of course, now Minute Maid Park. What, 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 what about, let's, let's get for a second, get into this, because is the cycle a thing? I, I just, I've never understood why everybody's excited. Oh, it looks cool because you get <laughs> a single, double, triple home run. It looks good on the scorecard, I guess. But it's just one of those deals where I, I don't feel like uh, the no-hitter, the combined no-hitter should be that big of a deal. And the cycle, to me, even less. It's just like a random act of chance of, okay, good. He got he got all of those in one day, but 
okay, that's it. I I don't know. Like I'd rather I'd rather you have like four home runs in a kid. Like that's something or three home runs. That that's a much bigger deal for because that that means runs. That means bases. All of those things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, I think a lot of the times is when do those hits come? You know, if if they come with nobody on base, then no runs are going to score. So I I guess you're right in that respect. I think it's just interesting because it it happens so much less. You know, it's, it's just one of those, as you said, random things that's kind of neat. But I guess in the full scheme of things, what does it really do? Well, again, I think it's a matter of timing. When What's happening when those hits are, you know, if you have runners on and you have four hits, you have a runner on second base, then you're probably going to get four RBIs. But if the bases are empty, each one of those four hits, yeah, it's just cool. A single, double, triple home run. That's it. What else do you got? You got some more? Yeah, I, I do. I have uh, several other things. In 1999, on July the 16th, Lance Berkman made his Astros debut. He pinch hit for pit, uh, pitcher Scott Ellerton. Pretty inauspicious or, you know, nothing big. He grounded into a double play, but the Astros still won 2-1 to one over the Detroit Tigers. And so began the career of the guy who is now the head baseball coach at Houston Baptist. So uh, Lance Berkman making his debut in 1999. I also saw that uh, Ken Caminetti made his debut. What was it, 1987, I want to say? Yeah, I believe that's right. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you remember this, but I, I specifically remember listening to the radio. And I was so excited because I had seen him in the Astros program. I'd read about him in the Astros program that I had picked up at a game. And I was like, who is this guy? You know, he sounds cool and you know, I want to see this guy in the major leagues. And he's got a rifle for an arm and he's got some power and... You know, this is something that we hadn't seen in an Astros third baseman with the, you know, Phil Garners or uh, Denny Wallings or th- that type of guy. And and then he comes up and he's like two for three and he has a home run in his debut and he's making highlight plays out in the field. It was really exciting when Caminetti got brought up. And really, I mean, it was always exciting with Ken Caminetti. And, you know, that's the debut that I think of in the last I don't know, 40 years that I was most excited about watching him in that particular game and seeing what he was able to do. I mean, you're you're definitely excited when Biggio came up and, and of course, uh, George Springer, but Caminetti, for some reason, he he already had this aura about him before he was even, he was even called up. Uh, I mean, Springer, we knew they were good and Biggio, oh, these guys are great. And they're, they're first round picks and all that. But Caminetti was just, who is this dude? This guy sounds uh, this the name Ken Caminetti sounded cool. Yeah, it did. And, you know, he's one of the that really just flashed on the radar. And when he did come up, I mean, you could just tell right away, as you said, the aura. He he had a brashness uh, about him, you know, that that you couldn't help but notice. And, and of course, he, he came up, as you said, he went two for three. So he made an immediate impact and and was an impact on the Astros for several years. It's It's unfortunate that uh, he went down the road that he did. You know, it's a very tragic story, unfortunately, that that happened with him. But certainly for a number of years that he was with the Astros, he made a contribution. So the, yeah, that is another debut that we can talk about. And in 1992, on July the 14th, hey, you know, we mentioned Jeff Bagwell. You're, you're probably not going to mention Bagwell in this week in Astros history without mentioning something that Craig Biggio did. Well, he became the first MLB player to appear in the All-Star game at second base after doing so at another position, catcher, the previous year. So that that was pretty cool, I thought, uh, that he did it in the All-Star game. And, of course, we know that, you know, if you're an Astros fan, Biggio went from being an All-Star catcher to an All-Star second baseman. So 
pretty cool there. And I felt like it was never talked about enough when he got into the Hall of Fame by the national media. Houston knows this. They know Biggio's path to the major leagues and being a catcher. But, I mean, this is a kid that was a catcher in college. He was a catcher when he started in in the big leagues. And to make the move from catcher to second base, that's no small move. And what he did was extraordinary. I mean, and he had to work on it all the time to get better at that as he uh, made that transition in the major. He didn't go down to the minor leagues and do this. He did it in the major leagues. And it's it's extraordinary and, and to do it and to be an all-star at second base and to put up the numbers that he put up after he made the transition. All of it should have gotten a lot more applause by the national media, especially when he was getting into the Hall of Fame. I just I was like, why is this not mentioned more often? It's It's a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. I mean, you talk about you can't be much different from one position to the next. Uh, you really can't. And of course, you know, the, the theory was that catching is, is so hard on your body. And they felt that he was athletic enough to make the switch. Now, he wasn't a big fan of it at the beginning. He had to be talked into it, you may remember. So that's something else to consider. But once he applied it, well, you know, the results speak for themselves and the rest is history. And my final historic moment in the Astros on uh, This Week in Astros History, it occurred in 1971, pretty far back, but it was on July 16th. The Astros turned their first ever triple play in their history, a 6-3-5 triple play. You had Roger Metzger to Dennis Minky to Doug Rader. So, yeah, you know. Metzger to Minky to Raider, it sounds pretty cool, but it's not, you know, the (laughs) the first a chance thing that we talk about a lot. And it probably didn't decide the game because the Astros beat the Mets 9-4, to but still pretty cool to think that the first ever triple play that the Astros did was in 1971 this week. That's not a a usual triple play either because it sounds like you said 6-3-5. It's shortstop to first base to third base, right? Uh, Yeah, it's not your conventional around the horn type of thing. Now we got to move on from the Astros because there's another rumor going on in Houston sports that's interesting. I'm not sure if there's a lot to this, but we're hearing noise about the Pistons potentially trading the rights to the first pick in the NBA draft, a.k.a. Cade Cunningham, to the Rockets. It's the old story of I believe it when I see it. But, Stephen, when you look at Cade, he's six foot eight, big wingspan, uh, shoots from distance. His defense is better than Jalen Green. He's in incredibly ambidextrous when I'm looking at all of his highlights. I'm blown away by his passing and finishing with either hand. Pretty good passer with potential to be exceptional, although his assist to turnover rate is not what you would think for somebody of of that nature. So, you know, let's see what happens when he gets to the NBA. But, you know, all the skills, all the physical tools seem to be there. I'm not throwing the kitchen sink, though, at Detroit to move up just one spot because Jalen Green... He's got all-star potential in my mind, but if it's a reasonable price, I I guess you've got to do it that size with the skill set that Cunningham has. It's tough to find, you know, because of his height, he's six foot eight and he's going to be able to play really good defense for you also because of his long arms and his ability to cover a lot of ground and and, and the current NBA to be able to play multiple positions like he is Jalen green, six foot five. He's got a lot of work on his defense. So Overall, you know, Cunningham's going to be the better prospect coming in. Yeah, I mean, if if the Rockets need something, it's shooting, but but they also need defense too. And that is one of the, that's probably the biggest thing for me about Kay Cunningham is his versatility. He, he can provide so many opportunities for you to get better. 
and to build around. You know, th this is it. The Rockets are in a rebuilding mode. So whomever they pick, it really needs to be a guy that they can build around either quickly or if it's somebody like Evan Mobley, for instance, you know, it's going to take a little more time. I, I, I think we've spent so much time assuming that Cade Cunningham may not be in a Rockets uniform just because, the, you know, the Pistons would draft him first or, you know, maybe trade him to some, uh, trade that pick to somebody else and somebody else will do it. But no, I, I think you have to put it on the table. It is not far-fetched to think that the Rockets could trade up, you know, to get him. Again, I, I hope that the offer is something that's going to benefit the Rockets. You know, I would hate, as you said, to throw the kitchen sink at it just because you've got other guys in the draft that you can take. It's not like you're moving up, say, from number 12 to number one or even, you know, from number five to number one to get him. But it is intriguing. I mean, it's something that we have to keep our eye on. I mean, I, I think all possibilities are on the table right now with the draft less than two weeks away for the Rockets. And you kind of look at Cade Cunningham like Luka. He's a similar player. I don't think he's anywhere near as good as Luka, but it's not like he's way behind Luka. Kind of reminds me of a little bit of Penny Hardaway back in the day, but there's a little bit more Luka to him than than I would say Penny Hardaway. They're talking about potentially trading up to get another lottery pick, getting the Pacers lottery pick, and then throwing that in. If they can get another lottery pick, I don't know if it's all that good to just move up one spot for Cade as opposed to Jalen if you can go ahead and, and get the 13th pick and you say, well, the 13th pick, that's not all that great. But, I mean, we've seen some really good players get picked around that range, including guys like Giannis and Kawhi. And there's some guys in this draft that, you know, they might turn out to be a, a, a high lottery type potential guy. And, and it reminds me of the Luka thing because Luka – Remember, they made that deal with the Hawks, and the Hawks got Trey Young, and, and they ended up getting another pick, Cam Reddish, to move down. And so you don't have Luka, but they still have Trey Young, who's a guy that just about took them to the finals this year. So you have to throw all that into the equation. Well, absolutely. And to me, look, it's all in your scouting. You can't just discount these mid and, and late round picks. You know, if you play your cards right, you can strike gold on some of those picks. You know, hopefully especially if you're a Rockets fan, you don't want the Rockets to be picking number four or number five every year because that, that doesn't bode well for their seasons. So sure, you know, if you can get another pick like that, maybe that it, it's a mid-round pick, like a 13, 14, 15, you might do that deal. But honestly, uh, you know, if if the Rockets stay at number two and pick somebody like a, a Jalen Green or Evan Mobley or, you know, even Jalen Suggs, they're still mentioning him, I, I'd be fine with it, but if you're going to move up to take somebody like Kate Cunningham, then please let it be the right deal. You know, don't don't go off the rails here just to move up one spot. That that's my thinking. Okay, so I think we kind of agree on that. And speaking of the NBA and Rockets, we've got to talk about some ex Rockets that are playing right now in the NBA Finals. Uh, we're going to get to them in a bit, but. It looks like we're finally seeing the Milwaukee Bucks that have championship talent and are putting it together after going down 2-0. They've won three straight. And Steven, Chris Middleton's turned it up another level in the finals. Hey, the Bucks' defense has been pretty exceptional throughout the playoffs, but their offense is about what Chris Middleton is doing from game to game. And with Giannis's skill set, he couldn't be that guy, that go-to guy, bucket getter, uh, who was going to get those tough shots when it mattered. And Middleton 
has been that guy. Giannis has been exceptional too, but Giannis is doing it more on the defensive end. He's doing it, I would say, more in other areas and other parts of the game. But in the in in the times that matter, when they need a bucket, Middleton has really become the guy that you would have hoped if you're a Milwaukee Bucks fan with all of his talent. Yeah, Chris Middleton is honestly the guy who has stepped up in this postseason. You know, he strayed a little bit before the finals, but uh, in this finals, he has really been the one to shine. And I think, Robert, it's a case of, you know, the, the Bucks are really supposed to be the team that won it or wins it this year, really, if you think about it. Phoenix is the feel-good story, and, you know, the, you know, Chris Paul, if you're a Rockets fan, maybe you're cheering for Chris Paul to get that title finally. Maybe you're not. But I, I think, it, really, if you looked at it, the Bucks are the team that are supposed to win this. History's not on their side, being down 0-2 in the finals, certainly. But now, you know, they put themselves in a position – they just have to win one more game and the title is theirs. Yeah, speaking of Chris Paul, I mean, you got to talk about what's going on there because if the Bucks lose, I hear some people, oh, this is another referendum on Chris Paul in the clutch, yada, 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 whatever. His finals numbers, 21 points, 8.8 assists, 2.8 turnovers, 54.3% from the field, 52.4% from three. He's getting harassed and hassled by Drew Holiday, one of the best defenders, you know, an all-NBA-type defender on defense. Uh, he's been battling the injuries that he's had throughout the playoffs, and you could go, well, that's part of Chris Paul's story is the injuries in the playoffs over his last few years. But he's 36 years old, and to do what he's doing right now in the finals and putting up those numbers with Holiday harassing him, yeah, he struggled a little bit maybe at times later in games, However, I, I just feel like uh, Chris Paul has done all that you could hope for. And maybe if the Suns lose this, they're just one guy short because the Bucks have three guys. And really, the Suns, it's maybe two and a half because, I don't know, DeAndre Ayton, I, I don't think he's quite been there for the for the Suns. And I, I don't know if he's quite the the hardcore number three guy. And, and, and the Bucks definitely have three guys. Well, if, if you want to continue to talk about the what if Chris Paul had been with the Rockets thing three years ago, Robert? You, you take all those numbers you just said in, in the finals and put them to where the, if he had played those last two games with the Rockets, would you take that? You know, would, would the Rockets have a championship? I would say, uh, yeah, absolutely they would have. Also, P.J. Tucker in the finals. you got to look at his numbers, too. 52.6% from the field, 57% from three. Both ex-Rockets. You know, the numbers, at least from field goal percentage, they've stepped up on the biggest stage. And and I, I'll go back to Drew Holiday. The Bucks traded two first-round picks and two pick swaps for Drew Holiday. They will never regret this deal. It helped them get or helped them keep Giannis. And Drew Holiday, he's just been massive on both sides of the ball in the finals. Was doing it all, all through the playoffs defensively. But I feel like offensively it's been more of a drew holiday stepping up in the finals than he was in previous rounds. And you know, that big defensive play, you got to talk about stripping the ball oh. from Devin Booker late in game five, which might be the play of the series. Yeah, it very well might. And it's the block, you know, they talk about a lot of the, the big plays in the finals, you know, on both sides, but right now the bucks have the momentum, you know, certainly, but I, honestly, if, if the Suns can take game six, you know, you set yourself up for a game seven, man, this is, this has been about as good a series, I think, as, as we could expect. And we were certainly hoping it would be, you know, really wouldn't want to see one team or the other sweep. You want to see a good series. So it's intriguing for a number of reasons. 
So yeah, if, if the Bucks can win Game Six and uh, you know take care of it, then the game the series is over. But if the Suns win, man, set yourself up for, for Game Seven. I don't think you you can't help but watch that. And I can't believe that. Devin Booker and Drew Holiday. I think it's Drew Holiday. It might be the other player. Those two guys supposedly are going to the Olympics and are going to be playing in the first game of the Olympics. Potentially, was this Sunday or something like that? Yeah, how's that going to? Man, that's that. Talk about a short turnaround. That's interesting. Yeah, it's crazy. And we're, let's move on from the NBA, but we're we're still going to talk basketball. And this story is something that I feel like. It's something most of our listeners missed that was news this week. And a, a guy named Dennis Murphy died. And Dennis Murphy, a lot of you guys are saying, who is that? They're asking himself, why do I care about Dennis Murphy? Well, let me explain why he's such a big deal. He co-founded the ABA. First of all, that's you know a, a massive thing. We're going to get to that. And also the World Hockey Association. Thanks to him, Houston had its first pro hockey team, the Houston Arrows. Thanks to Murphy. The legendary Gordy Howe played in Houston. Thanks to him, Houston got its first pro basketball team. The Houston Mavericks. Yes, there was a Mavericks in Houston before there was one in <laughs> there Dallas. There sure was. And uh, the Mavericks were a charter member of the ABA in 1967. They played two seasons at the Sam Houston Coliseum. The ABA, behind Murphy's leadership, created the three-point shot, the slam dunk contest. Where would Maury Ball be, by the way, without the three-point shot? Thanks to the ABA, we now have the Nets, Nuggets, Pacers, and Spurs all in the NBA. Murphy also produced the Battle of the Sexes tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs right here in Houston at the Astrodome. So Dennis Murphy, under the radar, lost this week. Uh, he was in his 90s, nothing tragic there, but it's a guy that deserves a little shine, especially from a Houston perspective. Well, absolutely. You know what, uh, what I had forgotten, honestly, Robert, is that during the ABA, that the, the slam dunk contest was part of the ABA. I guess I'd forgotten that. But uh, you talk about that as a forerunner to, you know, what you now see in the NBA All-Star game. You know, there, there are just people that you, you have to call them innovators. And, and maybe even that is a mild term to put it. Dennis Murphy was one of those guys. You know, he teamed up uh, with another man named, you know, business executive named Gary Davidson to start the ABA, the World Hockey Association, as you mentioned, World Team Tennis, you know, in the 90s, he even started another league, which didn't last very long. I, I want to say it was the World Roller Hockey League or something like that. You know, the, this guy was, he had his hands in some kind of pie. And when you do that, okay, maybe, you know, he didn't start anything that lasted for decades or centuries. But the ABA, the WHA, you know, the, the Battle of the Sexes and, and things like that, they each played a role in innovating sports to the point where, you know, we may have forgotten them perhaps, but we're still talking about what they did decades or years from now. And you can say that about Dennis Murphy for sure. Yeah. You're thinking of the roller hockey association. Yeah. That's roller it. roller yeah. hockey was kind of a thing back in the seventies for those who forget along with bell bottoms and big collars and stuff <laughs> like that. But also uh, you talk about that slam dunk contest and, the original, before Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins, the original slam dunk contest was the ABA superstar, Dr. J, where he came on the scene with the, the red, white, and blue basketball against David Thompson, NC State legend. Those two guys in the mid-70s had the slam dunk competition 
to start it all. And it was an extraordinary one with those two guys because they could both get up in the sky for sure. Well, and, and I bet you go to YouTube and, and you will agree, I think, that Dr. J, you, you talk about one of the best dunkers and, and just the best playmakers. Dr. J was it. And and what a lot of people may forget, and especially it, it gets lost in the shuffle now because, you know, the NBA, they, they take these guys, you know, have one year in college. But, you know, back then it was not cool. You know, the NBA would not draft underclassmen. They, they would not take them at all. The ABA stepped up and said, hey, we'll do that. Dr. J was an underclassman. And, you know, the NBA certainly wasn't going to take a flyer on him. But the ABA did, and the rest is history, you know, because without Dr. J, I'm not sure if the ABA would have survived. Do you have any memory of this Houston Mavericks team? Because that's that's a team that I had totally forgotten about until I was reading about it, that Houston had a professional basketball team before the Rockets came to town a few years later. No, I, I don't. I mean, I remember the name, certainly. I, I know that they, they existed, and as you said, it was only for a couple of years, so... Uh, I, I didn't start following the NBA until I believe it was the year after the Rockets came to Houston from San Diego, which would have been in 72, I think is when I started following them. So, yeah, pretty pretty fuzzy as far as the Houston Mavericks, except that, yeah, they did exist. <laughs> and now there's the Dallas Mavericks. Their coach and general manager was Slater Martin. He was a local guy. That's who they yeah. brought in to handle that. And And Slater Martin... You know, he's pretty pretty darn good player back in the day. He was one of the NBA's best defensive players in the 1950s, uh, playing for the George Mikan-led Minneapolis Lakers. That's taking you back. Uh, they won four oh, NBA championships between 50 and 54 and 56. He joined Bob Pettit, St. Louis Hawks, and won another NBA title. So he had a lot of cachet coming in uh, to Houston. So uh, that's a name that you forget. You know, he's a Houston area guy. Uh, was in charge of the Houston Mavericks. Just kind of an interesting story. Uh, if you didn't read about anything about Dennis Murphy this week, you, you know a little bit more. You can tell your friends about it. I don't know how interesting that was, but uh, Stephen, you got anything else before we take off for this one? Well, I, I just I think that, you know as we get into the NBA draft, you know it's just going to be interesting now that all kinds of things are going to be circulating. We talk about the Rockets could move up to number one. It, it's intriguing. We've got the MLB trade deadline coming up at the end of this month, so. Couple of interesting things to keep an eye on, you know, as far as Houston teams go. See what kind of moves they make. Are we going to like them? Or are we going to hate them? So, yeah, I'm I'm pretty intrigued by that. The NBA drafts a week from Thursday, and Stephen, it's not like this is big at all. It, it's this is the biggest decision the Rockets might have in the next five years. This is massive what they do on Thursday. Oh, absolutely, and it's going to be, you know, since you know Ralph Sampson, Hakeem Olajuwon, it's got that kind of implications. Uh, you know, we may, it, it seems like we're over-dramatizing it, but no, it's the truth. We're rebuilding this team. So you've got to make the right decision. We'll see how it turns out. Steve Francis didn't work out so well, but they ended up with Tracy McGrady when they had a number two pick that they actually d- dealt for with the Toronto Raptors. The Yao Ming pick, you know, for me, that was the pick to make. They made the right deal. Uh, it was just Yao Ming's, you know, his body just was not going to withstand it. But I mean, there's was... Uh, all-star level player for sure. And one of the best players in the NBA and and a big guy that mattered when big guys mattered back about a decade ago, 15 years ago, we still thought that the big man was a, was a big deal in the NBA Uh, to close things out. Just want to remind everybody you can reach us, Twitter, Facebook, email info at Houston sports talk.net. That's info at Houston sports talk.net. 
Until next time, stay healthy and safe, everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.